Section 57 of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book the Fourth, Chapter Three, Continued. They were all foreigners, and they quite deafened me by their jabber. I tried signs, but before I could make them understand me, I was seized with another shivering fit, and was carried below. The vessel held on her course, I have no doubt, but I was in no condition to know anything about it. Before morning I was in a fever, and from that time I can remember nothing clearly, till I came to my senses at this place, and found myself under the care of a Hungarian merchant, the consignee, as they call it, of the coasting vessel that had picked me up. He speaks English as well or better than I do, and he has treated me with a kindness which I can find no words to praise. When he was a young man, he was in England himself, learning business, and he says he has remembrances of our country which make his heart warm toward an Englishman. He has fitted me out with clothes, and has lent me the money to travel with, as soon as the doctor allows me to start for home. Supposing I don't get a relapse, I shall be fit to travel in a week's time from this. If I can catch the mail at Tristi and stand the fatigue, I shall be back again at Thorpe Ambrose, in a week or ten days at most, after you get my letter. You will agree with me that it is a terribly long letter, but I can't help that. I seem to have lost my old knack at putting things short, and finishing on the first page. However, I am near the end now, for I have nothing left to mention but the reason why I write about what has happened to me, instead of waiting till I get home and telling it all by word of mouth. I fancy my head is still muddled by my illness. At any rate, it only struck me this morning that there is barely a chance of some vessel having passed the place where the yacht floundered, and having picked up the furniture and other things wrenched out of her and left afloat. Some false report of my being drowned may, in that case, have reached England. If this has happened, which I hope to God may be an unfounded fear on my part. Go directly to Major Milroy at the cottage. Show him this letter. I have written it quite as much for his eye as for yours. And then give him the enclosed note, and ask him if he doesn't think the circumstances justify me in hoping he will send it to Miss Milroy. I can't explain why I don't write directly to the Major, or to Miss Milroy, instead of you. I can only say there are considerations I am bound in honor to respect, which oblige me to act in this roundabout way. I don't ask you to answer this, for I shall be on my way home, I hope, long before your letter could reach me in this out-of-the-way place. Whatever you do, don't lose a moment in going to Major Milroy. Go, on second thoughts, whether the loss of the yacht is known in England or not. Yours truly, Alan Armadale. I looked up when I had come to the end of the letter and saw, for the first time, that Bashwood had left his chair and placed himself opposite to me. He was intently studying my face, with the inquiring expression of a man who was trying to read my thoughts. His eyes fell guiltily when they met mine, and he shrank away to his chair. Believing, as he did, that I was really married to Armadale, was he trying to discover whether the news of Armadale's rescue from the sea was good news or bad news in my estimation? It was no time then for entering into explanations with him. The first thing to be done was to communicate instantly with the doctor. 
I called Bashwood back to me and gave him my hand. "'You have done me a service,' I said, "'which makes us closer friends than ever. "'I shall say more about this "'and about other matters of some interest to both of us "'later in the day. "'I want you now to lend me Mr. Armadale's letter, "'which I promised to bring back, "'and to wait here till I return. "'Will you do that for me, Mr. Bashwood?' "'He would do anything I asked him,' he said. "'I went to the bedroom and put on my bonnet and shawl. "'Let me be quite sure of the facts before I leave you,' "'I resumed, when I was ready to go out. "'You have not shown this letter to anybody but me? "'Not a living soul has seen it but our two selves. "'What have you done with the note enclosed to Miss Milroy?' "'He produced it from his pocket. "'I ran it over rapidly.' saw that there was nothing in it of the slightest importance, and put it in the fire on the spot. That done, I left Bashwood in the sitting-room and went to the sanitarium with Armadale's letter in my hand. The doctor had gone out, and the servant was unable to say positively at what time he would be back. I went into his study and wrote a line preparing him for the news I had brought with me, which I sealed up with Armadale's letter in an envelope to await his return. Having told the servant I would call again in an hour, I left the place. It was useless to go back to my lodgings and speak to Bashwood, until I knew first what the doctor meant to do. I walked about the neighborhood, up and down new streets and crescents and squares, with a kind of dull, numbed feeling in me, which prevented not only all voluntary exercise of thought, but all sensation of bodily fatigue. I remembered the same feeling overpowering me, years ago, on the morning when the people of the prison came to take me into court to be tried for my life. All that frightful scene came back again to my mind in the strangest manner, as if it had been a scene in which some other person had figured. Once or twice, I wondered, in a heavy, senseless way, why they had not hanged me. When I went back to the sanitarium, I was informed that the doctor had returned half an hour since, and that he was in his own room anxiously waiting to see me. I went into the study and found him sitting close by the fire with his head down and his hands on his knees. On the table near him, beside Armadale's letter and my note, I saw, in the little circle of light thrown by the reading lamp, an open railway guide. Was he meditating flight? It was impossible to tell from his face, when he looked up at me, what he was meditating, or how the shock had struck him when he first discovered that Armadale was a living man. "'Take a seat near the fire,' he said. "'It's very raw and cold to-day.' I took a chair in silence. In silence, on his side, the doctor sat rubbing his knees before the fire. "'Have you nothing to say to me?' I asked. He rose and suddenly removed the shade from the reading lamp, so that the light fell on my face. "'You are not looking well,' he said. "'What's the matter?' "'My head feels dull, and my eyes are heavy and hot,' I replied. "'The weather, I suppose.' "'It was strange how we both got further and further "'from the one vitally important subject "'which we had both come together to discuss. "'I think a cup of tea would do you good,' remarked the doctor. "'I accepted his suggestion and ordered the tea. "'While it was coming, he walked up and down the room, "'and I sat by the fire.' and not a word passed between us on either side. The tea revived me, and the doctor noticed a change for the better in my face. He sat down opposite to me at the table, and spoke out at last. 
"'If I had ten thousand pounds at this moment,' he began, "'I would give the whole of it never to have compromised myself "'in your desperate speculation on Mr. Armadale's death.' "'He said those words with an abruptness, almost with a violence, "'which was strangely uncharacteristic of his ordinary manner. "'Was he frightened himself, or was he trying to frighten me? "'I determined to make him explain himself at the outset, "'so far as I was concerned.' "'Wait a moment, doctor,' I said. "'Do you hold me responsible for what has happened?' "'Certainly not,' he replied stiffly. "'Neither you nor anybody could have foreseen what has happened. "'When I say I would give ten thousand pounds to be out of this business, "'I am blaming nobody but myself. "'And when I tell you next that I, for one, "'won't allow Mr. Armadale's resurrection from the sea "'to be the ruin of me without a fight for it, "'I tell you, my dear madam,' one of the plainest truths I ever told to man or woman in the whole course of my life. Don't suppose I'm invidiously separating my interests from yours in the common danger that now threatens us both. I simply indicate the difference in risk that we respectively have run. You have not sunk the whole of your resources into establishing a sanitarium, and you have not made a false declaration before a magistrate, which is punishable as perjury by the law." I interrupted him again. His selfishness did me more good than his tea. It roused my temper effectually. "'Suppose we let your risk and my risk alone and come to the point,' I said. "'What do you mean by making a fight for it? I see a railway guide on your table. Does making a fight for it mean running away?' "'Running away,' repeated the doctor. "'You appear to forget that every farthing I have in the world is embarked in this establishment.' "'You stop here, then?' I said. "'Unquestionably.' "'And what do you mean to do when Mr. Armadale comes to England?' A solitary fly, the last of his race whom the winter had spared, was buzzing feebly about the doctor's face. He caught it before he answered me, and held it out across the table in his closed hand. "'If this fly's name was Armadale,' he said, and if you had got him, as I have got him now, what would you do? His eyes, fixed on my face up to this time, turned significantly, as he ended this question, to my widow's dress. I, too, looked at it when he looked. A thrill of the old deadly hatred and the old deadly determination ran through me again. I should kill him, I said. The doctor started to his feet with the fly still in his hand, and looked at me, a little too theatrically, with an expression of the utmost horror. "'Kill him!' repeated the doctor, in a paroxysm of virtuous alarm. "'Violence! Murderous violence! In my sanitarium! You take my breath away!' I caught his eye while he was expressing himself in this elaborately indignant manner, scrutinizing me with a searching curiosity which was, to say the least of it, a little at variance with the vehemence of his language and the warmth of his tone. He laughed uneasily when our eyes met, and recovered his smoothly confidential manner in the instant that elapsed before he spoke again. "'I beg a thousand pardons,' he said. "'I ought to have known better than to take a lady too literally at her word. Permit me to remind you, however, that the circumstances are too serious for anything in the nature of, let us say, an exaggeration, or a joke. You shall hear what I propose without further preface. 
He paused and resumed his figurative use of the fly imprisoned in his hand. Here is Mr. Armadale. I can let him out or keep him in just as I please, and he knows it. I say to him, continued the doctor, facetiously addressing the fly, give me proper security, Mr. Armadale, that no proceedings of any sort shall be taken against either this lady or myself, and I will let you out of the hollow of my hand. Refuse, and, be the risk what it may, I will keep you in. Can you doubt, my dear madam, what Mr. Armadale's answer is, sooner or later, certain to be? Can you doubt, said the doctor, suiting the action to the word and letting the fly go, that it will end to the entire satisfaction of all parties in this way? I won't say at present, I answered, whether I doubt or not. Let me make sure that I understand you first. You propose, if I am not mistaken, to shut the doors of this place on Mr. Armadale, and not to let him out again until he has agreed to the terms which it is our interest to impose on him. May I ask, in that case, how you mean to make him walk into the trap that you have set for him here? I propose, said the doctor, with his hand on the railway guide, ascertaining first at what time during every evening of this month the tidal trains from Dover and Folkestone reach London Bridge Terminus, and I propose, next, posting a person whom Mr. Armadale knows, and whom you and I can trust, to wait the arrival of the trains, and to meet our man at the moment when he steps out of the railway carriage. Have you thought, I inquired, of who the person is to be? I have thought, said the doctor, taking up Armadale's letter, of the person to whom this letter is addressed. The answer startled me. Was it possible that he and Bashwood knew one another? I put the question immediately. Until today, I have never so much as heard of the gentleman's name, said the doctor. I have simply pursued the inductive process of reasoning, for which we are indebted to the immortal Bacon. How does this very important letter come into your possession? I can't insult you by supposing it to have been stolen. Consequently, it has come to you with the leave and license of the person to whom it is addressed. Consequently, that person is in your confidence. Consequently, he is the first person I think of. You see the process? Very good. Permit me a question or two on the subject of Mr. Bashwood before we go any further. The doctor's questions went as straight to the point as usual. My answers informed him that Mr. Bashwood stood toward Amadale in the relation of a steward, and that he had received the letter at Thorpe Ambrose that morning, and had brought it straight to me by the first train, that he had not shown it, or spoken of it before leaving, to Major Milroy or to anyone else, that I had not obtained the service at his hands by trusting him with my secret, that I had communicated with him in the character of Armadale's widow, that he had suppressed the letter, under those circumstances, solely in obedience to a general caution I had given him to keep his own counsel, if anything strange happened at Thorpe Ambrose, until he had first consulted me, and lastly, that the reason why he had done as I had told him in this matter, was that in this matter, and in all others, Mr. Bashwood was blindly devoted to my interests. At that point in the interrogatory, the doctor's eyes began to look at me distrustfully behind the doctor's spectacles. "'What is the secret of this blind devotion of Mr. Bashwood's to your interests?' he asked. I hesitated for a moment, in pity to Bashwood, not in pity to myself. "'If you must know,' I answered, "'Mr. Bashwood is in love with me.' 
"'Ay, ay!' exclaimed the doctor, with an air of relief. "'I begin to understand now. He is a young man?' "'He is an old man.' The doctor laid himself back in his chair and chuckled softly. "'Better and better,' he said. "'Here is the very man we want. "'Who so fit as Mr. Armadale Stewart "'to meet Mr. Armadale on his return to London? "'And who so capable of influencing Mr. Bashwood "'in the proper way as the charming object "'of Mr. Bashwood's admiration?' "'There could be no doubt that Bashwood was the man "'to serve the doctor's purpose, "'and that my influence was to be trusted "'to make him serve it. "'The difficulty was not here. "'The difficulty was in the unanswered question "'that I had put to the doctor a minute since.' I put it to him again. Suppose Mr. Armadale's steward meets his employer at the terminus, I said. May I ask once more how Mr. Armadale is to be persuaded to come here? Don't think me ungallant, rejoined the doctor, in his gentlest manner. If I ask on my side, how are men persuaded to do nine-tenths of the foolish acts of their lives? They are persuaded by your charming sex. The weak side of every man is the woman's side of him. We have only to discover the woman's side of Mr. Armadale, to tickle him on it gently, and to lead him our way with a silken string. I observe here, pursued the doctor, opening Armadale's letter, a reference to a certain young lady who looks promising. Where is the note that Mr. Armadale speaks of as addressed to Miss Milroy? Instead of answering him, I started in a sudden burst of excitement to my feet. The instant he mentioned Miss Milroy's name, all that I had heard from Bashwood of her illness, of the cause of it, rushed back into my memory. I saw the means of decoying Armadale into the sanitarium as plainly as I saw the doctor on the other side of the table, wondering at the extraordinary change in me. What a luxury it was to make Miss Milroy serve my interests at last. Never mind the note, I said. It's burned for fear of accidents. I can tell you all and more that the note could have told you. Miss Milroy cuts the knot. Miss Milroy ends the difficulty. She is privately engaged to him. She has heard the false report of his death, and she has been seriously ill at Thorpe Ambrose ever since. When Bashwood meets him at the station, the very first question he is certain to ask. I see, exclaimed the doctor, anticipating me. Mr. Bashwood has nothing to do but to help the truth with a touch of fiction. When he tells his master that the false report has reached Miss Milroy, he has only to add that the shock has affected her head, and that she is here under medical care. Perfect! Perfect! We shall have him at the sanitarium as fast as the fastest cab-horse in London can bring him to us. And mind, no risk, no necessity for trusting other people. This is not a madhouse. This is not a licensed establishment. No doctor's certificates are necessary here. My dear lady, I congratulate you. I congratulate myself. Permit me to hand you the railway guide with my best compliments to Mr. Bashwood, and with the page turned down for him as an additional attention to the right place. Remembering how long I had kept Bashwood waiting for me, I took the book at once and wished the doctor good evening without further ceremony. As he politely opened the door for me, he reverted, without the slightest necessity of doing so, and without a word from me, to lead to it, to the outburst of virtuous alarm which had escaped him at the earlier point of our interview. "'I do hope,' he said, "'that you will kindly forget and forgive my extraordinary want of tact and perception when, in short, when I caught the fly. 
I positively blush at my own stupidity in putting a literal interpretation on a lady's little joke. Violence in my sanitarium, exclaimed the doctor, with his eyes once more fixed attentively to my face. Violence in this enlightened nineteenth century? Was there ever anything so ridiculous? Do fasten your cloak before you go out. It is so cold and raw. Shall I escort you? Shall I send my servant? Ah, you are always independent. Always, if I may say so, a host in yourself. May I call tomorrow morning and hear what you have settled with Mr. Bashwood? I said yes, and got away from him at last. In a quarter of an hour more, I was back at my lodgings, and was informed by the servant that the elderly gentleman was still waiting for me. I have not got the heart or the patience, I hardly know which, to waste many words on what passed between me and Bashwood. It was so easy, so degradingly easy, to pull the strings of the poor old puppet in any way I pleased. I met none of the difficulties which I should have been obliged to meet with in the case of a younger man, or of a man less infatuated with admiration for me. I left the allusions to Miss Milroy in Armadale's letter, which had naturally puzzled him, to be explained at a future time. I never even troubled myself to invent a plausible reason for wishing him to meet Armadale at the terminus, and to entrap him by a stratagem into the doctor's sanitarium. All that I found it necessary to do was to refer to what I had written to Mr. Bashwood on my arrival in London, and to what I had afterward said to him when he came to answer my letter personally at the hotel. "'You know already,' I said, "'that my marriage has not been a happy one. Draw your own conclusions from that, and don't press me to tell you whether the news of Mr. Armadale's rescue from the sea is, or is not, the welcome news that it ought to be to his wife.' That was enough to put his old, withered face in a glow, and to set his withered old hopes growing again. I had only to add, If you will do what I ask you to do, no matter how incomprehensible and how mysterious my request may seem to be, and if you will accept my assurances that you shall run no risk yourself, and that you shall receive the proper explanations at the proper time, you will have such a claim on my gratitude and my regard as no man living has ever had yet. I had only to say those words, and to point them by a look and a stolen pressure of his hand, and I had him at my feet, blindly eager to obey me. If he could have seen what I thought of myself, but that doesn't matter, he saw nothing. Hours have passed since I sent him away, pledged to secrecy, possessed of his instructions and provided with his timetable, to the hotel near the terminus at which he is to stay till Armadale appears on the railway platform. The excitement of the earlier part of the evening has all worn off, and the dull, numbed sensation has got me again. Are my energies wearing out, I wonder, just at the moment when I want them most, or some foreshadowing of disaster creeping over me which I don't yet understand? I might be in a humor to sit here for some time longer, thinking thoughts like these, and letting them find their way into words at their own will and pleasure, if my diary would only let me. But my idle pen has been busy enough to make its way to the end of the volume. I have reached the last morsel of space left on the last page, and whether I like it or not, I must close the book, this time for good and all, when I close it to-night. Goodbye, my old friend and companion of many a miserable day. Having nothing else to be fond of, I half suspect myself at having been unreasonably fond of you. What a fool I am. End of section 57. End of chapter 3. 
and the end of the fourth book. Read by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois.